What I realized was it was hard to really get a sense of the temperature of the room, like reading the room. Welcome to Uptech Report. This is our Apply Tech series. Uptech Report is sponsored by TerraLeap. Learn how to leverage the power of video at TerraLeap.io. Today, I'm joined by my guest, David Shim, who's based in Seattle, Washington. He's the CEO and co-founder at Reed. Welcome, David. Good to have you on. Great to be here. Great to be here, Alexander. Now, Reed, you guys provide a meeting analytics for the leading web conferencing platforms. That's what Reed is all about. Help me understand, David, like what was the problem that you saw and set out to solve with Reed? Yeah, when, with Reed, really, it started at COVID when, you, when we all sat in more and more meetings. And what I realized was it was hard to really get a sense of the temperature of the room like reading the room. When I've presented before, I've been able to look around at the room, who's paying attention, who's not paying attention, who's looking at their phone, who's talking to their friend. And for me, it became very difficult to do at video conferencing. And especially once you started to get past two, three, four, five people, that level of scale, you're just not able to comprehend or process at that rate that you are in the physical world. And so I started to think about what can I do? What can we do to actually make that process a little bit simpler? And what, what came to mind was really like a dashboard, uh, kind of like when you're driving a car, you can't always think about how much fuel there is. You can't always think about how fast you're going. You can't think about the RPMs, but occasionally you will look down at your dashboard while you're driving and say, oh, I need to go to the gas station or, hey, I probably should slow down. I'm going 20, minute, 20 miles over the speed limit. And that's what we want to be able to do is give those helpful nudges during a conversation to not distract, but actually make the conversation better. Everything is around conversations. Like if you can have effective communication with your team, with potential people, that is paramount. And everyone shifting to online, there's a sense of uh, Zoom fatigue. That's a common statement everyone makes. But being able to still do effective communications, how are you, let's look at the technology first, and then then we'll look at at some of the other pieces, more human parts of it. Um, Is it effectively you're listening to the voice and the face? Tell me some of the, the pieces to it. Yeah, so it's a combination of computer vision. So it's looking at the faces and saying, what is that kind of expression that you're making, those micro expressions, where are your eyes looking? Are they darting around? Are they looking at somebody probably in the room and you're having a conversation? Those are all things that nonverbal, but just looking at the face. And if you think about it from a conversational standpoint, if you've got 20 people in the room, 19 of those people aren't talking. So it's important to actually, in order for you to get a temperature of the room, you need to be able to actually look at the facial expressions. Uh, Then we look at the words that are being said. So we were converting that transcription of voice into text, and then we're running it through a number of different NLP models to say, hey, is the conversation positive or negative? Are they talking about great earnings or are they talking about, hey, we're going to do layoffs? And really being able to understand that context to go in and say, now I've got facial expressions. Now I've got actual voice and specifically the words that are being said. And then the third group is prosody. So prosody, I didn't know what it was until uh, I started uh, read. And so prosody is really the tone of your voice. How do you say something? Is there sarcasm in there? Are you joking around? Are you saying great or like great? Like there's different ways that you can say those things. And it's important to actually pick up those tones. And you're saying that your, your model can pick up that, that variation in tones. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Now it's a work in progress. Like certain people have different layers of sarcasm where it's better than others. So that is a very difficult problem, but there's, there's obvious things. Like if you're very angry, the way that you say great can be very different from when you're super happy and you're laughing and you're smiling. So those are things that we're able to pick up and add into the model to say at the very end, just go and say in real time, how's the call going? Is it good or bad? That's, that's really that context. 
And you might say on a one-on-one, you don't need it. Most people on a one-on-one basis, you can get a read. But when you start to go into presentation mode, when you start to go in, you can't only see three people on the top of the screen because Zoom, you've got your presentation going, you've got your picture and maybe two other people on the call, you're missing out on the other 17. We're able to pull that information in as an attendee in the meeting, and we just set it to gallery view, and we're able to see those faces, and we're able to process all that information. Being able to look and detect, even just uh, you saying that the visual cues, if, if someone's paying attention, I imagine that's a that plays a big role, but you've been able to work around it when, when, when someone is actively looking at their computer versus looking away. Was that difficult to, to figure out and figure through? It was, because at first when we started, it was cameras usually on your laptop, so you're looking straight ahead. But in reality, then we started to say, wow, this is, this is strange with some of our training data. It's like people are looking this way, but it looks like they're paying attention. Oh, it's a second screen. Mm-hmm. So then we started to model, like, are you actually looking at a second screen? So when you talk, you go to this position, but then when you hear somebody else talk, you go back here. But what one of the basic rules of that is like your head stays stationary. So it doesn't move around because you're looking at the screen. It's a second screen. Versus if you're looking at a web page, your eyes might start darting like this and your head moves a little bit and you're kind of reading content. Here, it's like you're very stationary and you're looking at the screen. And that, that was kind of one feature in the model to pick up that second screen. Wow. I can only imagine the, 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 the minute details you'd be having to to fine tune as you look at this. Now, um, what was the process of, of, of beginning this? Is, is just creating this dashboard, getting those, those feeds in. Um, where did you get the, the training data? Are you, are you getting initial people for that? Or like, how did that begin? Yeah, so training data initially was in-house, right? So uh, co-founders worked together. We built the training data set. As we hired more employees, uh, we were able to build more training scenarios. And we tried our best to act in certain cases. And like, hey, pretend you're angry. Pretend you're sad. Uh, Those are hard things to do because a lot of people smile when they pretend to be like, I'm super angry, but they'll kind of grin. And so we started to look at a lot of open source data data sites. So open source, where we look at it, there's a lot of data out there, but it's very narrow. So it's not video conferencing specific, but it's going in and saying, here's a set of facial expressions that signify anger, happiness, et cetera. So there's a lot of data that's out there. There's been a number of great companies that have kind of worked in that space. Uh, Same thing goes for voice. If you think about voice today, it's almost, I don't want to, I don't want to simplify it, but it has become somewhat of a commodity where transcription 10 years ago, it was incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive. Now, AWS, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, all these services have transcription services there. There's startups that do transcription services. So now you're able to go in and pull in those transcripts, and then you run those transcripts through models. And there's a ton of NLP models, thanks to the Alexas of the world, et cetera, where people are used to processing that data and figuring out what did they actually mean. So, so building, basically, because of the democratization of, of NLP, you're able to build on top of that. Um, and then what you're, you're doing is, is refining, I guess, some of the data that's coming out of the audio side, but then the video side is, the, is the, probably the biggest piece that you're having to build custom. Is that correct? Uh, I'd say both. And the reason why it's both is a lot of the audio is one-way conversation. So it's not the conversations for the training data says, I'm very angry. I'm very angry. I'm very angry. <laughs> so when you have those things, that's that training data is for one person, but you want to have a conversation. So there's almost a, a back and forth. There's synchrony where you're talking with someone. And if it's a good flow, I'm not interrupting you. I stop, you talk, we go back and forth or smiling. Like those are things that you have to pick up. So I'd say open source helped us get off the ground very quickly. Um, but what we ultimately found was it gets us about halfway there. 
And then the other half was like very much specifically, we needed to build training data associated with uh, video conferencing. That doesn't exist at massive scale. Uh, when you have video conferencing, you have to be able to connect certain elements. Like what happens when it's only camera off, but it's voice? How do you treat that person versus if they had camera on and voice on? So you start to get in these like little niches, but they're very important niches when it comes to video conferencing. And for us, that's where we spent a lot of time now where we've done things like, you know, paying and hiring people to actually build out these training sets, to find public training data sets that are out there where there might be a video conference call with, um, what's a good example, a political panel. And it's a video conference call, political panel, it's available on the internet. And we look at that data and we say like, hey, let's have a hundred people watch this video and they score and they annotate different parts of the video to say, was this tense? Was this not tense? Was there laughter? Was there not laughter? Was there synchrony? Was there not synchrony? And really kind of building out these labels that are refined for video conferencing. It's quite an undertaking. Your your desire that you, you truly feel that this is a, a needed uh, tool in, in, in today's environment with, with Zoom meetings of being able to, to quickly look at that dashboard? 100%. Because when you think about it, half of all meetings are considered not productive or not satisfactory. And so that's going in and saying like half of the Zoom calls that we have, they're not good. Now you can't go in and just say like, I'm going to cut half of the meetings. You need to be able to understand what half, what made that bad. And for certain people, it might be a good meeting. So I've been on calls where there's 13 people on the call. Three people are going back and forth and they're just jamming away and they're having a great time. The other 10 people are like, why am I even here? This doesn't matter. So the call technically could be bad, but it was good for those three people. And so now there's opportunity to say, we should probably do this call again, but maybe not invite those 10 people. Not because we don't want to be inclusive, but because we don't want to waste their time because 10 people for one hour is one full-time employee for a day. And once you start to quantify those things, it's, it's not about taking away opportunity, but it's actually about giving people time back. Mm-hmm. See, what pops in my head is, is I think this information is valuable, but I'm wondering if um, are people going to automatically know how to use this? Like, like you, you just had a great insight right there of three people talking, but there's 10 people on the call, seven aren't, aren't doing it. Um, have you thought about how, uh, will you be providing that insight? Like, by the way, you should do this, or you think people should assume and, and f- be able to know this, like, wow, okay, we really shouldn't invite those seven people anymore because we don't, they don't, they're not needed for this call. No, there's a big education hurdle. Like there's like, this would be like, if someone never dr- if someone drove a car for the first time and there wasn't a dashboard, then all of a sudden, 20 years later, they said, here's a dashboard. And you're like, what is it? I've been able to drive without this thing. Why do I need this? This doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I like to compare it is right now, we're at the Rand McNally stage. So Rand McNally is a mapping company for folks who are listening in. It's old school. And they used to sell maps. They still sell maps. But they used to sell maps where you're driving in the car. If you watch those 80s movie and they pull out the map, that's what they did. They, they understood where the streets were, where the buildings were, where the mountains, where the rivers. Very hard problem. You need that baseline. And I think everyone is kind of right now using Rand McNally when it comes to video conferencing. They're trying to take what they've learned in the real world and trying to apply it in, in real world interactions and trying to apply it to the digital world where they've only done it for about two years versus like in the real world, you've done it 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of human interaction where you've been able to pick up certain tells, know how to respond to people. Digital world, you've only had two years. So that, that, that's the first step. So that's where it's like Rand McNally. Go ahead. So you're saying basically as, as humans, we've gotten used to in-person meetings, knowing how to, to read people and understand the room. And since it's gone to 
to virtual in the last two years, a big emphasis that we don't know how to do that anymore. hundred percent. And I think we certain things will always stay the same. Like being rude is not good. Being funny is great. Like there's things like that. But how do you imagine if you were in a room where all of a sudden someone took a black sheet, put it over their head and didn't say anything that entire meeting? Like you'd be like, this is weird. But that's what actually happens on video conferencing. Someone turns off the camera like this. And then all of a sudden you're still supposed to interact with this person while you're there in person. So these are traits where it's like, we're just not used to this. And I think there's a, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago where it said, Hey, the reason why we are so stressed out with video conferencing is because our human nature isn't designed for video conferencing. If you're within two feet of someone this close and you go in into the real world, you're either trying to date them or you're trying to fight them. And imagine like you've got eight hours, like just your nat- human nature, like yeah. close talkers. People talk about close talkers, like get away, like, right. I'm sure there's a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode about that. But mm-hmm. here it's like laptop, we're always that close. And that just yeah. isn't normal for us. So that's why we're always at a heightened state of like, do I need to do something? What's going on here? And I think you need to retrain yourself. And one of the best ways to do that is to have something like a dashboard, something that nudges you along the way. Mm-hmm. That gives you insights to know how, how is this going? What, is the, what are things going on? Interesting, interesting. Um, the, I'm curious, your own in, in, in feelings, in-person meetings, online meetings, which is more soul-sucking? <laughs> I think both can be just as soul-sucking in different ways. Uh, and I think that's what we're trying to solve. We're trying to solve. And our, our vision really is not to solve just for digital only. The hybrid workforce is going to go into the office. We're already seeing that across a number of our users where they have meetings that they're actually in the office with four or five people and there's seven people dialing in and making sure that connection exists. And this has, this is another reason why it's important to have something to help nudge things along where if I'm not in the room, I, I can't pick up certain things. Someone says a joke, I might feel excluded. Someone's in the off area and they have a conversation and I can't hear, I might feel exclusive, excluded. And you want to bring that in a hybrid world, make everyone feel like they're on a level playing field. And so for us, it's those nudges where we can identify, oh, hey, there's some conversation going on in this room that's muffled. It's probably a distraction to everybody else to give that room just a slight nudge that says like, hey, maybe you know, slow down on the side chatter or the sidebar that could actually make the meeting so much better for everybody who is remote. Wow. So you're suggesting, I'm, I don't know if this feature is active yet, but that if there was a combined remote and hybrid meeting going on, that it could listen and tell there was not enough audible sound, but the, enough chatter going on an alert would come up for those in that meeting saying, Hey, quit the quiet, quit the, the side chat. Yes, I think not today. Uh, we have partial features that do alerts along that point, but we want to get to the recommendation. So when I use that Rand McNally, today it's just maps. Uh, mm-hmm. Over time, we want to give directions. So think of it like this is MapQuest. Like you print out the directions and this is how you get to that point A to point B in the fastest yep. way, generically. Yep. But we want to get to recommendations, which is ways. And with ways, that's giving you nudges. And the beauty of ways is really it's so subtle, but you trust it so much that if it tells you like, hey, even though you've taken this route 90 times over the last 90 days, if it tells you the one time to say, hey, cross across four lanes of the freeway, take the off ramp, and you're going to save 15 minutes, you're going to go across those four lanes, even if you've only got like less than a quarter mile to get there. And you'll do it because it tells you that it's going to give you a better outcome. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's what technology needs to do. It's not about replacing people. It's not about AI that replaces someone in the conversation or tells you what to say, but it's just giving you that information in really bite-sized way so that you can decide to make a decision and you can decide, Hey, no, I, I'm going to stick with my own route, but I appreciate that. Oh, I got stuck in traffic. Maybe next time I'm going to listen to the AI a little bit more. This uh, another the thought that pops in my head is is this dashboard is like a check engine light or tire pressure. It's like it's similar. It's trying to give you clues that there 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 potentially could be an issue with someone on here is not being included or or um, uh, you need to pay attention to. Hmm. Exactly. What are some of the the things that have you seen that cause meeting sentiment and engagement to drop in, in a meeting? Like already maybe just a tip for, the, yeah. for the, those that are doing meetings like, since you're fo- so focused on this uh, this industry this. I think not having camera on. So certain people have gone to the culture of like, hey, it doesn't matter if you have your camera on or off, but it might not impact the person who has the camera off, but we see definitive like data that shows us like, if you have the camera on and you're one of a few people, you feel kind of like, oh, you're not paying attention just organically because now I'm in this empty room while I'm willing to show my face everybody else isn't. So you're going to go to that worst case scenario. Are they even paying attention? Are they surfing the web? Are they watching TV? Are they doing their laundry? You don't know why they decided to turn off that camera. So from an engagement level perspective, if you want to be a strong participant, and this is not a webinar, the webinar, they can't even see you. They don't care. But if you're in a meeting with like six or eight people, uh, turn on the camera. I think that that's a bar to say, like, if you don't need to turn on the camera, do you really need to be on the call? Like that's a question that you should ask, not in a bad way, but it's like, Hey, if they don't, if you don't, they don't need to read you. They don't need your facial expressions to understand like what your response is. Do you need to be on the call, or is this more just an update that you could skip and they send you an email? Wow, that's a great question to ask. If if yourself and and many folks that are doing meetings, what what do you see as kind of the the biggest roadblock of adoption uh, of saying, hey, let's let's try this. Let's put it. Uh, let's let me start looking at dashboards all the time in my meetings. Yeah, there's a couple. So I think one is education. So people don't know they need it. So this is a big problem in the sense of like Slack had the same problem too. Uh, There's a number of companies that have been very successful, a number that have failed where you have to kind of be able to say, this is a problem that you know, you didn't know you had, but now I can explain why the value proposition is so strong that you should be able to utilize the solution. So I think education is going to be key for us. Um, from how do you use it? How do you use it in a simple manner versus like getting thrown in the deep end? So if you look at our analytics today, it's really about the metrics, but we want to soften that up in future iterations to make it easier to digest. When you first come in, it's not, hey, there's a bunch of bar charts and a bunch of graphs going on, but it's like, hey, is the call going well? Yes or no? Good or bad? We want to make it a little bit simpler than that and then let people dive into the details. So I think that's going to be one hurdle. Uh, I'd say the other one is from a privacy aspect. So people are concerned like, hey, if you're measuring my calls, is something going to happen here where I get in trouble because I'm not talking enough or I'm not participating enough? And the goal is no here. So the things that we're doing right off the bat are we're saying we delete video and audio data 24 hours after the conversation. So there is no transcript. There is no video. There's no playback. We wanted to make it very Snapchat-esque so you could have more authentic conversations. So this is not a policing tool. This is more about, hey, we're giving you directions in real time on how to make that conversation better. Think of it just like with Waze. You never go back to Waze and say like, hey, let me go in and are you actually tracking where I'm going and this is the direction here and I disagree with it and this is a problem? No, no. You're just like, hey, give me the value and make me feel comfortable that you're not doing anything with it that could cause me problems, which we're absolutely, and we're saying, well, the simplest way is we just delete your data. 
So we just kind of put that out there. So we do need to be able to message that strongly and be able to make sure that people are comfortable in that aspect. Um, and when we join a call, as just as another example, in the chat, we'll go in and we'll actually let anybody opt out. So if you type in opt out when we're on a call, it will immediately leave the call. Not You don't have to be the host. You can be the 14th person on the call or the 400th person, but we will immediately leave the call and we won't measure anything. So the goal here is like, really, we want to make it as simple as possible for people who aren't comfortable to opt out, but we also want to make people feel comfortable that we're doing the right thing with the data. We're trying to make conversations better. What you were sharing earlier, actually, about even the fact that, you know, you're, you're paying attention to the way people's eyes are looking at everything. That's a, a big fear of privacy overall. So it sounds like you're, you're definitely honing in on the realization for that. It's like, let's just delete all the data. Nothing's kept, right? Absolutely. And that, that's important because you want that authentic conversation. Like whenever you know you're on camera and you, you might be like, oh, I'm going to stand up a little bit straighter. I'm not going to say more natural words that I do. I don't want to get in trouble. Like there's a certain aspect of that just naturally that we do. And for us, we want to have authentic conversations where when we give you advice to say, hey, David, you've been talking a little bit too long. Give Alexander a chance to talk. Like that becomes more natural. Like that's more like, you know, it's not tattletailing on me and saying like, you do this and I'm going to tell Alexander later. It's more like, Hey, have a really good call. And this is one thing that you just might've missed because you're so excited, so excited about telling the story that you went on probably a little bit too long and you can throttle it back. And, and when we did our prep call before, um, it, you brought the, the app in and I showed it. So it actually shows up as another participant. So everyone can see this happening. Is that right? hundred percent. So everyone can see it. Everyone has access to the same reporting. So it's not someone that has like information over you. It's actually democratized to say everyone has the same information because the way that I think about it is it's almost like a baseball game or a basketball game or a football game. You want the score on top of the screen because people can see how the game is going. They can make decisions based on the score, based on the hits, based on the runs. All of those information points make it a better interaction versus like, if I didn't know, like if you watch baseball, there was no score. You'd be like, well, this is kind of, I don't know what's going on right now. Is this good, bad? I don't know. Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, before we get into the, the business side, because there's everyone who's listened to the series knows I like the two parts, the technology and the business part of it. Um, coming back to just the technology a little bit more, is, is these, are these algorithms to be able to detect these nuances and understand and, and provide this data? Um, has it really developed that like, has it developed so far in the last like two years? Like, would you have been able to do this two years ago, three years ago, or um, is this been around for a while? We just, no one's just applied it. Uh, it wouldn't have been possible to do three years ago. So a couple, couple reasons why certain parts still have not been solved from the data science problem perspective. So we're, we're solving it as we go, but there are things like the natural language processing like that. That's now you're at GPT three where it's like, okay, I can actually write sentence for you based on your first three sentences. So you can see how far that technology has come along. Uh, computer vision, not all the way there yet. So I think it's that's about reading the emotion, the face. And there's a lot of biases that occur that have existed in the older models. So if you had a, let's say from a racial perspective, if you had a lot of Caucasians being the training data set, well, that's very different from someone who's in Africa versus Asia versus Europe versus South America. Like all of those groups have different ways that they express themselves. And in an international culture, like you're going to have different people on different calls. 
and they're going to be interacting with one another. And you just can't apply one group or one uh, gender or one race and say, this is the model that applies to everybody. So that is something that is a little bit newer where a lot of the training data sets had built-in biases. So it's important to actually fill in the gaps there to make sure that it is representative. Mm-hmm. Getting sentiment from such a, a diverse group of people, because the training set of training data doesn't exist, it sounds like is one of the bigger hurdles to, to both solving your problem, but many other problems related to this. Um, the idea of sentiment, the other thing that pops in my head, I'm curious what you see around this is some people just are different. Uh, I did an interview um, a little while ago with someone and I thought he was angry at me. Like, like, like I, I thought he was just like mad at me or something for most of the interview. But by the end of it, I realized he's just a very intense individual. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just just very here. And when he gets passionate, he gets but I, I might be furrowing my brows too much. I'm a very expressive person. Have you thought about being able to 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 be able to see the variety uh, of people's own expressions in that sentiment? Yes. So that, that that is a very good point. So initially we had conversations where it's like, your resting face can vary. So my resting face has a little bit more negative score than other of my coworkers, but we're able to see what your resting face is. So if you're able to build that into the models where you have a baseline, so it's like, hey, I'm not saying anything. I'm just looking at the screen, listening to you talk. I can start to build a baseline and that baseline I can apply over time of the call. So not across calls because we don't carry that information. But even in a 30 minute call in the first four or five minutes, I can start to build a baseline to then go in and say, okay, David is smiling, but he's just, that's a so smile for David. You're, you're actually building a baseline per person, not a general, all right, this is a baseline of an individual. Let's apply it to this person that we see on camera. It's a baseline of that individual. For the call, correct. So it's going in. Wow. And so we have the generic overall models. So we're able to kind of apply those. But as we right. start to build those baselines, we leverage that to say, hey, David's smile so far, his max smile is this. Okay, that's... All right. Well, that's his max smile. So we're going to keep an eye out for that. So it's going to be very different. Or the words that he says are very flat, not intentionally, but just I could just be like, hey, Alexander, this has been good. Appreciate your time. But if that tone, et cetera, that's, that's my baseline. So now if I ever go like, oh, this is great, all of a sudden it should spike in terms of sentiment engagement, right? Because my baseline was so flat. That, that is that is fast. I remember when I did this test with, with my team member and I'm just naturally very expressive. It was going up a little bit up and down. Um, but this other person isn't as expressive. So when they did something, I saw that. And I, it, it's it's really fascinating that you've tied it to the individual. And that makes it much more usable than than I would first assumed that the product was. Um, I, I don't know. Did you have that in your mind from the beginning that it would be per per individual or did you have to? Was that more of an evolution? Um, it's, it was an evolution. We, we knew we wanted to classify is a meeting good or bad at a very high level. We want to be able to identify that. Then you wanted it. Then we said, okay, now we need to figure out what parts of the meeting are bad so that it can be better or what parts of the meeting were good that you do more of those things. And it ultimately then came down to kind of like cohorts and individuals. So from a cohort perspective, like let's say you're doing a sales pitch, you don't care as much about your team and their kind of sentiment and engagement. You want it to be good, but it's it's not as important as the clients. So you want to build cohorts during a call to say, these four people are the most important people that I want to read on. I don't care about myself or the rest of my team. And having that has become very important as we start to talk with uh, different partners, as we talk with customers utilizing the solution. It's been important to actually kind of dive into what is that use case that you're trying to get to. Mm. I wonder... Are people going to get used to this on sales calls that 
the person selling you is going to be using this and wanting to know, do you like my product? Do you not like my product? <laughs> is that is that going to be one of the use cases then? Uh, absolutely. Because if you think about it today, there's Gong, there's High Spot, there's uh, Outreach, there's billion dollar companies with hundreds of millions in revenue. Okay. Do they focus on video as well or just audio? Just audio today. So it wouldn't surprise me if they go down the path, but their focus really is like on sales enablement. So it's not just the initial conversation. It's before with the research, it's the follow-up, it's the emails that they sent. But with that said, they're really kind of diving in and saying like, hey, a bot will join the call. So the gong will have someone joining the call. They're recording the conversation. It'll declare itself. Uh, And a lot of people will be okay with it. Like they've kind of set the table where they've trained prospects that, hey, gong is joining the call to make sure that it's a satisfactory call. And the pitch there is like, hey, it enables me to do a better pitch. If something goes wrong in this call from the follow-ups, I want to make sure I have the right follow-ups. There's enough value proposition there that people are opting in. Let's transition more into the business side then of what's your focus? Are you focusing also on the sales arena or uh, what, what's kind of your main categories you're looking at use, use cases? Yeah, today we're wide open. So by that, we, we have certain assumptions where we think certain markets will be very uh, favorable for us. But when we launched on Zoom, when we launched on WebEx, we actually made it completely free. So anyone can actually go into their app stores or go to read.ai, create an account, uh, and be able to use read unlimited, no questions asked, uh, no credit card required, et cetera. And the reason why I'm doing this is like in my past life at place, my former startup, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out who the right customer was. And we try to sell into them and we limited who had access to the product. Mm. And that was a little bit of a mistake in the sense that we found product market fit, but it took like four or five iterations. And those four or five iterations would have happened a lot faster had we made the first version more accessible versus a six-figure contract. And so here with Reed, we're going after an audience where it's like half a billion people use the top four platforms every single day. So it's a huge market. So for us, what we want to do is we want to push this out into the marketplace, make it readily available, and start to see different groups adopt this and say, this is very interesting to us. And then from there, we can take their feedback. And then we will start to go in and say, hey, what's the right pricing model for this? And for us, our assumption is that it's going to be per seat, just like Zoom, WebEx, Teams, et cetera. And it's going to go in and it's going to be reasonably priced. We're thinking somewhere around the same price as the video conferencing solutions themselves. So we want to make it very easy to adopt in the short term to drive adoption across more users and more use cases. You guys launched uh, in 2021, right? Yes. So we officially launched in September 29th. So that was, that's when we launched our first product uh, into market. So we're we're very kind of early days today, uh, but we've measured, you know, millions of kind of hours of conversation so far. We've delivered the analytics, we're getting the use cases and we've seen a lot of like, and this is where I think to your prior question, a lot of surprising use cases. Like one has been, uh, what is it? International corporations that want to interact with American customers and they're not able to pick up some of the social cues. So the way that an American might talk, the, the vocalness, the movement of the hands, the, the eye furrow, et cetera, those things aren't necessarily translate to someone in Singapore. It doesn't necessarily translate to someone in Dubai. And so it's important to actually bridge that gap of those social cues, those facial cues, those vocal wow. cues. And so we've actually seen a really large uptick in terms of users that are international and having calls with Americans. And we've actually started conversations with a few of these groups to say, hey, how do we scale this out? So that's one. 
Uh, but that was that's an unexpected one that we had. <laughs> I actually it pops in my head of because if anything, the internet is, is, is making more and more, uh, the, the world gets smaller and people are wanting to hire people in many different places. And so your, your cultural, um, your team culture, or rather the different cultures that are part of your team is only going to increase. H- have you thought about it, that being playing a role of this educating you on people's different ways of, of, of interacting of that actively? Cause what it sounds like one way to American, but outward as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So a good example is when I was at Foursquare, um, we had a number of partners in Japan and I don't know the Japanese culture as well as I should. And in some of those conversations, I couldn't get a read. I thought like, am I bombing this conversation? This is horrible. Like no one's talking. There only one person is talking. They're all looking at this person like what's going on here. And then later, as I talked to someone, that was a great call. I was like, what are you talking about? Only one person was actually talking and like they were really slow to respond. It's like, no, this is the way that they do it. It's the, it's the senior person that talks first. They're kind of digesting. I was like, okay, I would have, I would have loved to know that in real time because I would have kept doing what I was doing. So I think outwardly, there's also a use case to go and say, as I talk with other cultures, how do I bridge that gap? Because I might be doing something that is unintentionally offensive as well. So maybe I'm super excited and I'm talking fast and I'm talking really loudly. I might not understand that that might not be the right approach for a different culture. I would love a nudge because it's not intentional that I'm doing that. It's just the way that I speak today, but I wouldn't have any issues saying, Hey, I can slow down a bit. You know, I I can lower the volume a little bit. I can wait 30 seconds if they have a question. So I'm not interrupting them. Those are things that are easily solvable, but after the call, if you're a sales rep, you're done. Like if you offended a customer and you just, you got a lead uh, Tiki, let's say you've got those emails where it's like, 100 emails gets you 10 leads. Those 10 leads get you one meeting. That one meeting, 50% of the time it's canceled. So you've, you've done all this work to get there. Don't you want to actually have as many tools to make that 15-minute call or 30-minute call as good as possible? I feel like this is a term you shared with me earlier, augmenting reality with, with data, uh, not with glasses. It's, it's not augmented reality of like, let's... Though, actually, I will say I stopped myself in mid-sentence because I could imagine eventually your solution, if when AR glasses do come out, could it be used to, to read in, in a real environment the sentiment and the environment and like how people are doing? Is that, is that a potential future case? Oh, absolutely. That, that's, that's what we're very excited. I think yeah. next couple of years, video conferencing, huge platform. But over time, they'll, it'll become closer and closer where the real world and physical world interact. And Google Glass, uh, Apple Glass, Microsoft Glass, all these people that are coming out with these glasses, a Snap Glass, don't want to forget them. Uh, they're coming out with these glasses. There's going to be apps in those glasses. And those apps can be something like Reed, where Reed can go in and during a conversation, actually help give nudges to make that conversation better. We actually had one of our investors come out and say like, hey, I could definitely see a use case for autism, where if someone has, is on the spectrum and they aren't able to pick up certain social cues, this could be infinitely valuable to them, not just anybody else who's interacting with them, but to them to say, hey, I didn't, have you, did you notice this social cue? Maybe you should stop talking about this topic, or maybe you should go into more detail because they want more information. And just getting that nudge makes that person's life so much better because they're able to read the people around them where they wouldn't have been previously. And the person on the other side is able to actually have a better interaction as well. So that I think is like holistically where we want to get to a longer term. It's really cool to say like, we can make every interaction better. Um, 
So that's what I'm excited about. Uh, with that said, there's also like really business use cases. Like, okay, imagine that you are working at a $15 per hour job, uh, first job out of high school. Someone comes in and nothing against Karen's, but I'm going to stereotype a Karen comes in and they complain about X, Y, and Z. They're starting to yell at you. And you've never experienced this in your whole life. Wouldn't it be great if something actually, if you're wearing like Google Glass or an Apple Glass that said like, hey, take a breath. This is what you need to do next. And all of a sudden it's like, this is phenomenal, right? This is like training in real time. This is making that outcome better where you might've been berated by this person and they would have left unsatisfied. You would have been angry too versus like, hey, this is how you deescalate the situation. I I see the future. I love it. I love it. Uh, So you you have um, uh, two other co-founders, right? Elliot and Rob, is that right? Correct. Yeah, so VP of data science and VP of engineering. How did you guys meet? Uh, so we've worked together, Elliot, I've worked together for almost 20 plus years. So we met at a company called Faircast, which did airfare price predictions. And what we did was we actually scraped the internet for airline ticket prices. And then we built models. I didn't build them. Elliot built the models that went back and said, hey, based on the price movement, based on the route, based on the time of day, based on the day of week, we can predict airline ticket prices will go up or down whenever you do a search. So when you're on Kayak, they have this feature. Uh, Expedia used to have this feature. Other places have this feature where it's like you type in a route, it'll tell you, should you buy the ticket now or wait because the price is going to drop? So that that company, we worked together there, uh, was bought out by Microsoft. I can't remember when. I think early 2000s. And then I, I got back together with Elliot and Rob at my next startup called Placed. And what Place did was measure the physical world and our core product was attribution. So did someone see an ad, hear an ad that then drove them into the physical store? So what we were doing was kind of similar to this in a lot of ways was we were taking really noisy location data from smartphones and trying to identify, did a store visit occur? So not did you walk by the store, but did the store visit actually occur? And then do it with a high enough level of accuracy that you could actually decide how you want to spend advertising dollars. Because if you've ever opened up Google Maps, uh, it gets more and more accurate, but sometimes it shows you across the street or you might be at a gym, but it shows you at a McDonald's right next door. There's all these variations that can occur. And if you get that wrong, that could have severe implications in a lot of different areas. So um, for us, we worked together there for a decade, uh, went to Snap, went to Foursquare. And then over time, like I left, uh, they left at different points and I took a little bit more time off. I was just kind of like enjoying a break from location. And then we ultimately kind of connected together this summer and we started to say like, what are you thinking about? What are you working on? And this kind of came to the top of the list. For you as a as CEO, what do you think is your biggest strength? If That's a good one. I think I've gone, I'll, let me give you the first one is uh, previously was energy, unlimited energy. And this was in my 20s and 30s where I could work 18, 19 hours uh, sleep for a couple hours and then go back right into the work. Uh, and that, that's, that's something where, you know, my twenties and thirties, I was able to do, but as I got older, um, it becomes hard to do because that, that level of energy, that level of commitment, that level of sacrifice, uh, becomes harder. You have friends, you have family, you have children, you have house, you have all these other responsibilities. Start to Mar- kids? I'm no, not married to no kids yet, but uh, okay. other Don't things there where it's like, it's important that that unlimited energy lets you go in and say like, if there's a problem, I can throw as much energy as possible to try to solve it. 
And that's something that was like very important during the place days. It was very much like, I need to find more customers for the product. So what I could have done, it was like a nine to five. It's like, I'm done at five. I'm not going to reach out. What I did was I would go in and I would write like 300 emails over the night, find all these people's email addresses, I'd draft them up. And then in the morning, when it was the right time, I'd start sending them out. But it was kind of like, it let me go in and say like, I'm going to take this block of time and actually use it for something rather than sleep so that then I can actually make the business drive faster. And that worked out well. Uh, but now I'd say it's just kind of like the operational experience, just understanding like all the mistakes that I've made uh, over time. And I've made a lot of them. And to go in and say like, hey, I made a lot of mistakes. Let's not replicate those mistakes. So as I run into the same type of situation, how do I solve those differently from what I would have done before. And then also leaning on the successes that I've had and leveraging that. And that's really been kind of a, a differentiator with Reed has been really focusing around take learnings from past companies and really apply them here. And that's one of the reasons why we launched so quickly. Our goal was really to get it into people's hands, to get feedback, to figure out what that product market fit is with the consumer versus trying to build product market fit in kind of a silo and then coming out two years down the road and saying like, hey, we built this product and people might say, I love it. This is great. I want to buy it. Or you know, I'd be like, oh, this is not that great. And we're like, oh, we spent two years on this. Well, that didn't matter. Yeah, it's 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 taking that knowledge. You need to get there, get it there faster. Is there uh, any uh, lessons learned of where you made a mistake in the past, but you won't do it again. And it's an easy fix that you could recommend or, or maybe even share of uh, for other founders. Ooh. Yeah, I think that quick to market, we've already talked about that. I would say relying on your team a little bit more. I, I would say you want to let people run a little bit more, especially as a founder. It's hard sometimes because the place does a sole founder. Uh, at Reed, I have co-founders. And that's been night and day where you're able to kind of focus in on where you're best at. And then you're able to trust those around you to actually execute it, own it at the end of the day. And that's been really important. And that's given me a lot more uh, work-life balance than I had the last time around. Mm-hmm. So coming back to, to read, and I always love actually you used it in a previous statement of uh, when you can use the company name in a sentence and you're like, oh, he said the company name, but you <laughs> I didn't, but he did. That's fun. Um, when somebody can read the room, I think that's what you said. Exactly. Um, it, it, was it easy to come up with a name, by the way? Uh, it was. It was hard because what it comes down to is like domain names. Like I, I can come up with some really awesome names, right? <laughs> but it's like, can you actually get the domain name? It's like read.com. Nothing's on that page, but it would probably cost five to ten million dollars to buy it. Would the VC say that's a good use of money? Probably not. Uh, so it was kind of figuring out what's the right name, what describes what you're doing, um, but it doesn't have to be perfect. There's a lot of companies that have names that have nothing to do with what they do. I think with Place, we're a location company. It made total sense. People got that. Read, we're reading the room. They get that. Uh, but we tried a lot of different ideas in between too. Uh, but this one kind of really stuck. We were able to get read.ai for a premium, but not a crazy premium. Um, so that was kind of the the path where it's like, okay, we can get the domain. We like the name. It aligns with what we do. It kind of describes very quickly. If someone said like, hey, we're reading the room. I'm like, okay, I sort of get what you're doing there. Yeah. Uh, near term-ish. Or do you currently, or when will you support the ability for the hybrid meetings where there are some people in, there's like four people in, in a, re, a meeting and then there's three people online. Can you support that? And when would you support that? 
So we support that today, but we're getting better at it and we're putting a significant amount of resources to improve that process. So one is kind of things like if there's four people in a room, in a conference room, and you can't see their head or their head comes in and out, how do you handle that scenario? When a fifth person comes in, how do you handle that scenario? Uh, The diarization, of who's actually speaking, because a lot of the time when people are in a conference room, they're looking at the other people in the conference room, they're looking at the camera. So how do you pick up who's actually talking? Uh, Those are all things that we're solving for and we've solved in some way, but we can absolutely get better at that. And the hardware is actually getting better too. So Microsoft is coming out with something. Logitech has this, uh, Zoom has this, where they're taking conference rooms now. And if you have the right type of high fidelity camera, so you can't do it with like a really bad camera, but if you've got a high fidelity camera, uh, you're able to go in and actually take everybody in the conference room. They'll take their kind of facial expression, their shoulders, and they'll put them into a box. So now instead of seeing a conference room, you've got a four by four by four by four and the people in the conference room have their own box. So it's recreating what you would normally see if everyone was online. Exactly. And so I think that's, that's a place where right time, right place. We're getting to the place where we're working on that solution, but there's also others working on that solution. That's why we decided not to build the video conferencing platform. So a lot of companies and startups in the space, a lot of great companies, mind you, uh, are building video conferencing platforms to take on Zoom, to take on WebEx, to take on Teams, et cetera. Uh, that, that's a very hard battle because you have to take down this incumbent that has a half a billion users. It's built into the meetings, licenses are set. Um, and I think there'll, there'll be some challenges that come along. But what we said was, we're going to treat this more like Apple and Android, where we said there are platforms that kind of control the ecosystem today. They don't want to build all the applications. They don't want to build every single feature that's out there. They want companies to come in and build. That's why you see Zoom apps. That why you, that's why you see WebEx apps, Teams apps. And that's where we're kind of, we went and we said, we don't need to recreate video conferencing. Let's make video conferencing better by adding analytics to it. When did the whole app stores in these places start to, to come about? It's just been the last year? About the last year, yeah. And if you think about it, like the app store, I'm surprised it took that long because mm-hmm. it, you have you know half a billion people across the top four platforms in less than 18 months. So in that period of time, you've got it's faster than iOS growth or Android growth combined. Because wow. you're looking at 18 months where it was... 30 to 40 million people using video conferencing every day to half a billion people. Yeah, it's just crazy to think about that numbers to go to half a billion. And there's obviously opportunity here for, for, for providing additional value in these app stores. Um, for, for you guys, when you, when you look at the kind of the, what's coming up, it's quite a, hurdle, I guess, in some ways to still solve these problems. That's why other people haven't, it doesn't exist just yet because it's so, so nuanced. Are you worried about the competition though? Or, or because the challenge is so hard, you're not, you're not too worried about it. We're we're not too worried about it. I took the same approach at place where competition is good. Competition is actually good for a really nascent market because that gets education out there. Uh, We can't educate 500 million people. Like I'd, I'd love to say that I've got aspirations where I can figure out a way to educate half a million people that use video conferencing on the benefits of analytics. Not, not the case. The more companies that are kind of celebrating the value of analytics, the easier it is to then go in and say, who has the best solution? Who has the simplest solution? And I think that's where we will win. Um, I think we will have the best tech, but it's always nice to have people kind of nudging and educating. And that's what happened at Place. Like Place, uh, we had maybe probably two dozen competitors in the location space. They were, they were educating and talking with ad agencies, corporations, marketers, et cetera, to say like, this is the value of location. And 
when we came, when we started, we had to explain what the value of location was and then the value of place. It makes it so much easier when you can say, hey, people already bought into the value of video, better video conferencing and your analytics solution. Tell me more about that versus like, oh, I didn't know you can measure video calls. Tell me, spend an hour and tell me about that. Uh, it, it's competition is not a bad thing. Absolutely. It helps everyone. It helps everyone uh, rise up. I love that. I love that mentality. All right. So just a fun question to kind of to, to end up here is, um, is there any um, technology that, that you would love for it to come into existence that it isn't here yet, but uh, any t- it's futuristic tech that you're like, man, if I could have it right now, I would. Uh, I think it'd be AR. I think it's the most realistic, but it's still two to four years out at scale. And by AR, I mean AR in a glasses environment where you're able to look at anything out there and actually start to get information, but only when you want it. So that, that's the key. Like, how do you actually bring AR to glasses where it, is, it doesn't distract, but it enhances? I think that's the important. It's got to enhance the experience, not distract. Because I think we've all had this, the smartphone where it's like, hey, you can actually see the real world and you see all these bubbles on here. Like Google has this, Apple has this, and you get all this information. It's like, I'm never going to hold my phone like this in the real world scenario to find anything. It has to be something that's very elegant and natural. And I think you start with AR with glasses where you're able to go out and just wear something very simple. And then it's like, how do you actually, from a user experience and design perspective, do those nudges? And it might even be something along the lines of like Neuralink at some point, which is Elon Musk chip in your head. I'm not saying that that's what happens, but to be able to have some type of subtlety to say, when you look at something from a facial expression standpoint, this is where our technology can come in. It's like, oh, you're focused in on that or you're, you look confused. Wouldn't it be great when you're looking at something or you're confused? It's like you're at a museum. You're like, what is that? Just see a little so nudge that says this is information. UX powered by facial reactions and, and people's sentiment. Exactly. But you've got to make it like seamless, right? It has to be like a third arm where it just moves naturally. Because if you if you have it where it's a distraction, it doesn't work. But like I said, if, if you're looking at a car and you're like, huh, you look at the price tag, wouldn't you want automatically like six other prices for dealers nearby? That'd be great. That would be like all day long. Give it to me. A salesperson pays attention to those cues. When someone yep. started, oh, oh, I better go over there and, and help them out. And, and technology should be able to do the same of, oh, you have an issue, you have a question, here's some potential answer. That is a really, I've never thought about UX being powered by uh, uh, humans' reactions and, yeah. and their response. The future. So there's a lot of fun stuff coming. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, Dave, for, for sharing the journey that you're on. And for those that want to learn more about Reed, go to read.ai and you can download it right now. It's, it's apparently it's free and, uh, and, uh, and, and try it out. Thank you so much, David. Excellent. Thanks, Alexander. And we'll see you all in the next episode of Uptick Report. Have you seen a company using AI, machine learning, or other technology to transform the way we live, work, and do business? Go to uptechreport.com and let us know. Mm-hmm.